Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode of Get Booked is sponsored in part by our All the Books podcast, which if you haven't listened to yet, you definitely should. On All the Books, Book Riot resident Velocireader Liberty Hardy and several rotating co-hosts discuss the week's most exciting and intriguing new book releases from every genre. Stay up to date on the best new books with new episodes every Tuesday and get bonus recommendations for older books every Friday with the All the Backlist drop-in episodes. Never miss the buzz on the best new releases Listen to all the books on Spotify or your podcatcher of choice. This is the Get Books Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 184, and we are recording on June 4th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. In the correct states. In the correct <laughs> states. Yes, yes. We just got back from Pod X, which is a podcasting convention in its first year, and that was super interesting. Yeah. So many true crime podcasts out there in the world. So many. So many. So many. I most. would love for someone to explain that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I don't get it. I don't like they're entertaining. I don't they make me feel weird. And then I'm scared all day of what's hiding in my house. It's just I might be too much of a weenie for true crime podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm with you. I'm terrified of all things true crime. So, mm-hmm. but you know, clearly, it's a it's a whole thing. It's a thing. Big market. If you have thoughts about that, feel free to email them to us. Yeah. Murderinos, tell us your feelings. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, if you are new to the show, welcome. As we said, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations, which means you send us in questions and we will do our best to find you your next good read. It can be looking for comps or read-alikes for a favorite book. It can be a book for your book club or for a friend or relative or maybe somewhere you're traveling, whatever. We will do our best. You can send those questions to us at getbooked at bookriot.com or drop them in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site for every episode. If you have a time-sensitive question, please put time-sensitive, all caps, either in the subject line of the email and or the first line of the form and the date that you're hoping to get a response by. We will do our best, but if we think we're not going to get to it on the air before, then we might shoot you an email. So keep an eye out for those. And if you've asked a question we've answered a couple times before, we might send you a link to that. So look for that. All right. So we have a little bit of feedback from a couple of people for B, who was looking for books about art, theft, or crimes in museums. Uh, Priceless is Megan's recommendation. It's by Robert K. Whitman. He is the founder of the FBI's art crime team, and Priceless is his memoir. It's been a few years since I read it, but I remember devouring it. Very interesting. And then Sybil says, I thought I would send a couple of recs for novels for this. Unbecoming by Rebecca Sherm. 
Worm. It's a good art heist mystery thriller. Starts after the heist, and you learn about what happened via flashbacks while waiting for the last shoe to drop. Build as Donna Tart meets Gillian Flynn, and I think that's too much for it to live up to, but it's still a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, the second book that Sybil recommends is The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos by Dominic Smith. This one involves both art forgery and art theft, as well as museums, wealthy collectors, etc. It's a dual timeline narrative where we follow an obscure woman painter in Renaissance Holland and the path of what happens to one of her paintings in the modern world. Absolutely gorgeous and a wonderful read. Thank you so much for those recommendations. All right, Amanda's going to do our first question and away we'll go. All right, our first question is from Renee, who says, I'm leaving for a two-week trip to a small town in Italy on June 9th, and I'm looking for a book or series that will keep me hooked in a town with very little Wi-Fi. I tend towards nonfiction over fiction, but I've recently gotten into queer YA fiction, and if I read adult fiction, it's either historical fiction or crime slash suspense. For reference, I've read and loved almost every Nelson DeMille and Dan Brown book. I'm not a fan of more traditional literature, think Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice, etc., and my eyes tend to glaze over if an author takes two pages to describe a chair. Same. Uh, otherwise, I'm pretty open and trust your recommendation. Okay, I'm gonna just go. Here we go. We're going. We're starting. So my pick for you is The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue by Mackenzie Lee, um, which is queer YA historical fiction. So I think it's a nice mashup of the things that you've recently gotten interested in. And it's such a page turner and so delightful. Um, and kind of, I don't know if it takes place specifically in Italy, but the main character is on like a grand European tour in the 1700s. So it will be, um, I think it will feel you know, relevant to your experiences at that time. So the main character's name is Henry. He goes by Monty. It's the late 18th century, and he is a son of a duke. Um, but he's very, you know, like, roguish and likes to spend his time drinking all of the things that he could possibly drink and sleeping with all of the people that he can possibly sleep with. Because why not? Like, he's the son of a duke. He's got nothing better to do. Um, and his father has, like, had enough of this. His father is done. Uh, Monty's going to be 18 soon, and he's going to need to start taking over more responsibilities around the, I don't even know, dukedom? Yeah, that's the word. He's going to start having to take over the estate. That's the word I was thinking of. Um, and so his father wants him to kind of, you know, straighten up and fly right. Straighten up being literal here. Straighten up and fly right. And so he sends him on a grand tour of Europe um, with a very strict set of guardians and tutors with the um, general, like, guidelines of... You need to learn some stuff. You have to learn how to be an adult and stop sleeping with people, specifically stop sleeping with men, uh, stop drinking, like get it together so that you can be an upstanding English gentleman. And it does not go well. That's not what happens. Instead, there are like pirates. Stuff gets stolen. Um, and all while all of this is going on, Monty has a secret crush on his best friend, Percy, who is himself, is he bisexual or is he gay? I don't remember. One or the other. Um, and he is a biracial young man who has his own set of challenges, um, you know, living in Europe in the late 1700s and his challenges bring a lot of Monty's like self-indulgent behavior to light it's their relationship is so great it's so great and he's going with his sister um who is also fairly untraditional in as much as she just like wants to be an adventurous and she's brilliant and loves science um none of which fits the boxes that you know their father wants her to to fit in so it's a very like wealthy misfits do Europe kind of a thing in uh the 18th century and it's so fun. And Monty, I was prepared to be very annoyed by like rich, privileged dude goes to Italy. 
But he is amazing. Like he's such a, he's just a squishy, he's he's a prickle hug. Like he's a prickly outside. All he wants to do is hug you, squishy center. He's the best character. So that's The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue by Mackenzie Lee. And the second book in the series is about his sister. Um, And what is it? Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy is the second book. Um, So yeah, go read it. Nice. <laughs> I picked a nonfiction for you and it might not be obvious at first, but this, I just couldn't not pick this book for you. Okay. So it is The Telling Room by Michael Paterniti. And it is about Michael and his family who moved to a teeny tiny Spanish town in part because 10 years earlier while working at a gourmet deli, he like encountered this piece of cheese that was so expensive that he literally could not afford it. And it's like rumored to be the best and finest queso in the world. What? And there's like a legend about the cheese, like it's an ancient family recipe in a Castilian village and like it gets aged in a cave for decades and it's maybe got magical qualities and, you know, all of this stuff. So 10 years later, he and his family decide to move to a tiny backwater town in Spain to like for various reasons, including because they want to slow down and get away. And this is, I think, what reminded me of it. It's like you're going to be in a town with very little Wi-Fi, a small town in Italy with very little Wi-Fi. And I was like, oh, it just reminds me of because he talks about being sort of disconnected from the flow of the digital world and the fast paced city life. And also he starts looking for this cheese, for the cheese maker of this fancy cheese. And then there's like a decades long feud around the cheese and like betrayal and like friendship severed forever and competing stories about who did what to who. And so it's like, it's a little bit of a, it's a cheese whodunit. Like what even is that? But it's so <laughs> interesting and it's so well told and you get a little bit, it's a little bit memoir, a little bit like quote unquote cheese crime. Um, and <laughs> I was totally held by it when I read it just on a whim because I was like what cheese like tell me more about cheese and I feel like it's the kind of thing that could happen also in a sleepy town in Italy so it might like you know give you some ideas as you're wandering around uh so again that's The Telling Room by Michael Paterniti how did he not just call that the cheese crime I mean uh call me Michael we'll be grand <laughs> Okay. Our next question is from Rachel, who says, I'm moving from Texas to Washington State in late August and would love recommendations for audiobooks to listen to during those 35 hours of driving. I'd love something set in the Pacific Northwest or on a cross-country road trip. Fantasy, especially with folkloric elements, tends to be my favorite, but I also like mystery, horror, sci-fi, romance, and post-apocalyptic. I'm a sucker for beautiful or descriptive prose, competent and clever protagonists, and weird magical people or creatures, both Bonus points for queer characters. Oh, such a good wheelhouse. All right, Amanda, what you got? All right. I have The Talented Ripkins by Laddie Hubbard, which is a cross-country fantasy road trip with folkloric elements and competent, clever, weird, magical people protagonists. So I'm just checking all your boxes. I love when that happens. It makes me feel really good about myself. <laughs> okay. So The Talented Ripkins is so great. This is a road trip novel about Johnny Ripkins, who is 72 years old. And when the book opens, he has one week to find a bunch of money that he's stolen from his boss, who is a mobster, or he's gonna die. Like, that's kind of just the end of that statement. Um, and so he starts this big road trip across the South, going to all of his old haunts, like his brother's house, or where his, his brother is dead when the book opens, but like where his brother used to live 
their childhood home, homes of his friends, gas station, random gas stations, where him and his brother, who used to be burglars, buried a bunch of money and like stuff that's worth money. While he's doing that, he's, his first stop is the, his brother's home, where his brother's um, girlfriend still lives with his niece. Uh, so who he's not met. So he meets his niece and he realizes that his niece has some superpowers. And so does Johnny. So does everyone in their family, as a matter of fact. They all have really odd superpowers. Not your typical kind of, you know, flight, invisible, invisibility stuff. But like Johnny can make maps of any space you can tell him about, whether he's been there or not. His brother could scale walls. His father had this weird ability to see colors that, like, did not exist. And so he was this really talented painter. And back in the 60s, uh, the Ripkins are a black family. Back in the 60s, they formed a group called the Justice Committee with their family and a few other friends who had powers of their own in order to combat injustice in the South. Uh, This is during, you know, obviously during the Civil Rights era. Like, Johnny would use his brain, his powers to make maps of the South and give them out to black people traveling um, so that they could avoid, you know, like sundown towns and places where black people shouldn't be seen after dark. Um, and, you know, here's a map of all the friendly restaurants in the area, like that kind of thing. Um, they It ends up not, you know, not work like they don't save the world with their efforts. And so out of frustration, Johnny and his brother started robbing people, like in a very kind of Robin Hood-ish sort of way. And it goes really wrong. And then you fast forward up to present day where he's 70 and he's got this 13-year-old girl in his car who has her own powers. And he's looking back over his life of like how he's misused them. A lot of the time was forced to misuse them. And he's got this girl uh, who has is now in the same predicament, but in present day. So it's like both kind of a slow burning heist because he's got a sneak his way and con his way into these spaces where he hasn't been in 40 years and like convince people to let him dig holes in their floors. Um, And I love their relationship, the relationship between Johnny and his niece. And it's got that like really fantastic kind of like mobster. I don't know, like the, the mobsters who follow Johnny around are hilarious. Like they're incompetent, they're goofy, they're playing into a little bit of those kind of tropes, but they're also like legit. So it is a bit ominous. Like it's funny, but also he might die. So the stakes are pretty high. Uh, But the fantasy, the like magical realism of this book is my favorite part. Like the way that she uses the powers of the family. And like, if you actually did have the power to make a map of any with, you know, any place you've been, whether or any place, whether you've been there or not, I feel like this is what a lot of people would try to do. And it's based on W.E.B. Du Bois' essay, The Talented Tenth. So if you've read that, um, I think you'll really understand what Hubbard is trying to do here. So that's The Talented Ribkins by Lottie Hubbard. I also feel like I have nailed this question <laughs> because Sarah McCary has a queer magical YA series that takes place in the Pacific Northwest and you can read and love all of them. Uh, the first one is called All Our Pretty Songs and it's hard for me to pick a favorite because I love this trilogy so much. But this one is It's definitely tied for first, maybe. Um, And it is about two best friends who basically grew up as if they were sisters. Their mothers were best friends and they've just like been together forever. And one of their mothers dies. Aurora is like she's the pretty, you know, charismatic, outgoing one. Um, And her mother dies. And so 
Aurora and her best friend, who is our nameless narrator, are really just like together all the time forever because, of course, Aurora sort of gets taken under uh, our nameless narrator's mother's wing as well. And so and they really, you know, complement each other. Our nameless narrator is the more responsible, pragmatic one, like looks out for Aurora, makes sure she doesn't get in too deep to anything. And then one night at a party. There's this mysterious guy named Jack who shows up, is incredibly talented at the guitar, and sparks fly between our narrator and Jack. But she's also incredibly insecure, because teenage girl, and is like, does he like me? Does he not like me? What if he likes Aurora better? What if Aurora likes him? Like, oh, all of these complicated feelings. So there's a little touch of a love triangle, though not too much. And then it turns out there's this added magical element in that there is a person who appears to be a Hollywood producer, but is in fact like a horrible underworld guy who is uh, going to offer musicians and other people like everything you want for successful career, wealth, fame, etc. You just have to give him your soul. And our nameless narrator has to rescue her friends from this situation. So it's kind of, it's an Orpheus retelling, except gender bent and about sisters, which I love. And the world that McCary creates is so lush and so immersive. And there's great sections in the woods of the Pacific Northwest. Like I could just recall them right now, clear as day, even though it's been years since I read this book. And all of them are like that. And there are, there are, this one is more straight in terms of the romance, but further ones get much more queer. And it's about found family. It's about sisterhood. It's about the choices we make. It's about art and creativity and what it means to be a creative person and what it means to follow the thing that you think is your thing. And bonus, as you might have told from the title, the, the little bit inspired by uh, Kurt Cobain. So um, there's some, you know, alt rock references in there as well. So it'll it'll give you some song hankerings, uh, which is also good for a road trip. So again, that's All Our Pretty Songs by Sarah McCary. It's the first in the Metamorphoses series. They are on audio. Highly recommend. All right. Question three is from Whitney, who says, I would love to find reading recommendations for books that talk about nutrition for those who are not on a diet. I don't need to diet, but I would like to know more about what is best to be putting in my body. Do you have any recommendations on where to start? Jen, do you want to do you want to rant first? <laughs> it's up to do you. you. want me to rant first? I'm so, I, uh, what happened to me here? You, Amanda picked the book I would have picked. And then when I was trying to find an alternative pick, I fell down this rabbit hole that just gave me all of the rage. So I am just going to rant for a second here about the fact that there are so many books out there with such like lecturing, didactic, patronizing tones about what you should be eating or not eating. And nutritional science goes through fads. I think if you are like in your 30s or even in your late 20s, you have seen this like first eggs are good for you. Then they're terrible. Then they're good for you again. First butter is the devil. Now it's like better for you. Red wine's going to kill you. Red wine's going to save you from heart disease. Like this stuff is so poorly reported on, if not also understood. And there are so many people out there who do not have nutritional science or medical degrees telling you what's good for you. And it makes me feel insane. So I would just say to you that like, I oh, also here's another part of the rant. A lot of these things claim that the same things are going to be good for everybody. But like, if you're going to tell me that a whole grain diet is good for you, for me and I should be eating more wheat, like I can't because I am gluten intolerant. So 
and no one quote unquote diet or food like these superfoods is necessarily going to be good for everybody because we all face different challenges with our digestion and body chemistry. And like you just can't, there's no blanket thing that's going to be good for everybody, despite what the internet and like these books want to sell you. So I just really want everybody to think really hard about what the motives of this whatever diet it is that's getting pushed to you. Like think about that and maybe talk to a nutritionist, like talk about your personal experiences with food. Think about how food makes you feel because that is really important. End rant. Okay. <laughs> All right, so the book that I stole from Jen on accident (laughs) um, is The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. And Jen is right. It's very hard to find a book that's about nutrition in any way that isn't trying to sell you on a specific dietary structure that benefits one person or another, Um, mostly the author who probably doesn't have any degree or background in the topic. And or the food lobbyists, because that's real. That's real. That is. So Michael Pollan is a journalist who in this book is not trying to sell you on anything. He wanted to go, he wanted to kind of do a historical deep dive into the evolution of American food from, you know, our, our arrival as a species on this planet uh, to present day with and the standard American diet, which I love that that is abbreviated sad because it is. <laughs> so the omnivores develop, uh, dilemma, the subtitle is a natural history of four meals. And he breaks the book into four different kind of like food groups, essentially, like there's a whole section about corn. And there's a whole section about grass, which is like wheat and rice and things like that. Um, there's a section about meat. And I don't remember what the fourth one is. But he does this very interesting historical and journal journalistic research into how those particular four particular food groups, I think, is it olive oil? No, it doesn't matter, um, became such staples of our diet from the like birth of agriculture to now and how they've changed from the birth of agriculture to now. Because of course, you know, the things that we eat in 2019 may have the same name as the things that we were eating thousands of years ago, but they're probably a little bit different. Um, and so the conclusion that he comes to in try and like the point of the book is to Get, look through fad diets and look through fad nutritional quote unquote science um, to find out what we've actually been eating this whole time and like how it has affected us or not. And so the conclusion that Michael Pollan comes to is that the like the way to eat is really to eat real food, not too much, and most of it should be plants. That's it. Like not not all of it should be plants, but like most. Hence the name omnivores dilemma. And so I, this is one of the first food books that I read. I've read tons of food books. Some of them are complete garbage. Some of them are really interesting. But this one is my favorite. So eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And that really encompasses like if you think about the fads that have come and gone in nutritional science, like you know Atkins was a thing forever. Keto is that thing now. Even like people who claim that the only healthy way to eat is to be vegan. Like the the through line for all of those is that you're eating whole foods and not eating a lot of processed stuff. Like that's really kind of it. Um, and that's I think Michael Pollan's essential thesis is like eat real food, not too much. It should mostly be plants. End of story. And that is the most uncomplicated way of talking about eating that I have still read unto this day. So that's The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Mules by Michael Pollan. And if you want a cookbook, I just want to give a quick shout out to America's Test Kitchen is amazing. And they put out a cookbook called The Complete Mediterranean Cookbook, which is basically that. Everything I've made from it has been delicious. It's whole food, mostly plants, and I'm obsessed with it. So, all right. 
Uh, our next question does not inspire a rant in me. <laughs> it's from Wynn, who says, uh, looking for YA nonfiction for our rising sophomore who has found respite from studies in scrolling, TikToking, picture editing, and other time burglaring activities. <laughs> She's got walls of books, all read, some reread, most of which are fiction. She likes realistic fiction, suspense thriller, social justice, psychological thrillers, a little true crime, maybe some romance, and doesn't prefer to linger in long prose. Books that have moved from her shelf to nightstand lately are Mosquito Land, You by Carol- Carolyn Kepneys, Dumplin', Never World Wake, Home by Toni Morrison, uh, a few others. She likes scary movies, is a great playlist maker. Uh, nothing rattles or grosses her out, etc., etc. Hope you can f- throw all of this in your mix master and pour out some great nonfiction that can grab a sophomore's attention. So this is an interesting question. I immediately thought, based on what you said about her being a great playlist maker and loving music, and then also the social justice piece, I thought of Beyonce in formation remixing black feminism by omasike natasha tinsley and this is super interesting it's based on a course she started uh, teaching in 2015 called beyonce feminism rihanna womanism and this is her taking what she learned and developed in the classroom and using it as a book and it's mostly focused as you might guess around beyonce and specifically lemonade as a sort of framework for thinking about black feminism but it also has like there's Nicki Minaj in there and Rihanna and like a lot of other music. So it's it will put songs in your head. Like as I was listening to it, I was like, ah, playlist, playlist. <laughs> um, and it's fun because she is she's very thoughtful and like she is a teacher. So she knows the theory, but she's also very in conversation with pop culture, which I feel like really speaks, especially to somebody who's younger and maybe hasn't encountered feminist theory in that form yet could be really amazing. And she's thinking about sexuality and gender, and she's thinking about marriage and motherhood, and she's thinking about, you know, LGBT politics and just so many different things. Uh, And also like talks about, you know, it's not just black artists too, like Loretta Lynn is in there. So it's a really interesting overview, both of how women are represented in pop culture, specifically musically, and then how we think about feminism and specifically black feminism through that lens. So I feel like this will send her down like sort of an amazing couple of rabbit holes. And it's very readable. It's so readable. I love this book. So again, that's Beyonce Information, Remixing Black Feminism by Omisike Natasha Tinsley. Okay, I picked Here We Are, Feminism for the Real World, which is edited by Kelly Jensen, who is a Book Riot associate editor, just for full disclosure. Um, I picked this because it's an anthology. It's a YA nonfiction anthology. So, and it's not all essays. There are a few essays, but there's also a lot of comics and poems. There's like lists randomly. And not everyone who writes for the anthology or creates art for the anthology is a writer. Like, Amanda Sternberg has a piece in here that I think was actually originally on her Instagram account that, yeah, it's like an Instagram post. And of course, Amanda Sternberg is a actress. She's not a writer necessarily. Um, Michaela DePrince, who is a ballerina. Wendy Davis, who's like a senator, no, state senator from Texas. So many different kinds of people, including a couple of men, are like brought together to talk about feminism and what feminism means and what it looks like and how it, you know, like living it out in the world and the different ways that it can be intersectional, like the experience of a black woman versus the experience of a Latina, for example. Um, And so Kelly really brought together as much as she could a collection that is 
has something in it for everyone. So somebody who is really into art will find something for them. A teenager who really likes music will find something for them. There are musicians in the collection. Um, Matt, what's his name? Uh, Matt Nathanson is one who like, I was going to say is on the top of my head, but obviously it wasn't because I had to dig for it in the bottom of my head. I don't know. Um, and But it's so diverse in perspective. And I think that uh, a sophomore who is very social media savvy and into multimedia content, like your daughter sounds like she is, will find so much in here to be interested in and to talk about potentially with you. So that's here we are, Feminism for the Real World, edited by Kelly Jen. Quick note, I had to double check this is why I didn't say it earlier. I believe Amanda, Amanda Stenberg's pronouns are they them. Oh, my bad. Okay, uh, moving right along, it is time for a sponsor, which is Carrie Mora by Thomas Harris. Yes, that Thomas Harris, uh, (laughs) sponsored by Grand Central Publishing. This is a new, well, we talked a lot about actually crime and thrillers in this one. Here's a new one. Uh, $25 million in cartel gold lies hidden beneath a mansion on the Miami Beach waterfront, and ruthless men have tracked it for years. Leading the pack is Hans Peter Schneider, driven by unspeakable appetite. Ew. He makes a living fleshing out the violent fantasies of other richer men. Cool, cool. That's our villain. Carrie Mora is caretaker of the house and has escaped from the violence in her native country. Beautiful and marked by war, Carrie catches the eye of Hans Peter as he closes in on the treasure. But Carrie Mora has surprising skills and her will to survive has been tested before. So if you like stories about Cartel Gold and the Miami Beach waterfront and thrillers and all of those things and a heroine, you will want to check this out. Again, that's Carrie Mora by Thomas Harris. Thank you for sponsoring show i went to an advanced screening of the hannibal movie when i was in high school <gasps> did you good lord i got a t-shirt <laughs> you got, so wait but you traditionally are a weenie so how does yeah, that fit well, into your now it's when okay. i had kids when i had oh. kids i became a very traditional weenie when i was in high school i had a cardboard cutout of hannibal lecter all right all right we're all onions we it's just strange strange kid i was but i'm so excited that thomas harris has a new book <laughs> I'm your dad. I'm your favorite dad. You okay. are my favorite dad. It's true. Thanks. Sorry, right, dad. Question five <laughs> is from Kelly, um, who says, what does Kelly say? Um, I don't really know a good way of defining what I like to read, other than I typically like relevant recent literary fiction, though I like plenty of lighter fare also. I think I like authors who write very plainly, and I have little patience for overly wrought phrasing and writing that sounds too pretentious. I'm currently reading Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney and could barely put it down to write this email. Uh, some books and authors I particularly enjoyed are Never Let Me Go, Sourdough, and Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, all of Jim Bulahiri's books, and less by Andrew Sean Greer. Um, let's see. The problem is I'm kind of picky, so there are a lot of books that I thought I would like that I end up quitting after 100 pages or so. Uh, I also tend not to love long books. 350 pages seems to be the perfect amount for my attention span. What are your thoughts based on what I've described about Otessa Moshveg's book? I read a few pages of both Eileen and My Year of Rest and Relaxation at bookstores and was interested, but I also wondered if I might end up hating them five chapters in. Okay, so I'm going to keep going. I think Mushveg might be a little MFA-ish for you, um, to be honest. Like the books that you listed that you really like, the Sally Rooney, uh, Ishiguro. Well, the Ishiguro and Robin Sloan's books are all a little bit weirdly magical, um, kind of, um, or science fiction-y, or they're like literary fiction plus, you know, plus another genre. And Conversations with Friends also not magical but a little bit lighter than what i think like my my year of rest and relaxation is an entire about book about a woman who takes a lot of naps so i don't know that sounds maybe not up your alley i like 
it's not it's not for everyone um so what i did pick for you is the pisces by melissa broder which was also long listed for the women's prize and um normal people by sally rooney was too so i think if you like the style of one you might like this too i will say it is a very divisive book um people either are really into it or hate it entirely I was really into it. Um, so it's about a woman named Lucy who's been writing a dissertation about Sappho for like 10 years. She is in her late 30s and she's getting nowhere academically or with her career. And then her and her boyfriend break up. So she hits rock bottom, total rock bottom. And so she goes to stay, take a sabbatical and to stay for a while in Los Angeles at her sister's house uh, while her sister is on vacation to like watch her dog and stuff. And, you know, take care of the house and like get her act together and figure out what she wants to do with her life. And while she's there, she decides to attend, well, not decides to, she is court mandated to attend some group therapy meetings about her addiction to love, specifically this one relationship. She starts trying to date, like she tries Tinder out. Um, and while this is happening, she uh, is staying on the beach, like her sister's house is on the beach. Um, and when she's out on the rocks one night, she re- she meets this like very cute which who she assumes is a surfer this cute guy who's a surfer in the rocks um who like comes and talks to her and every night she goes out to sit on the rocks hoping he'll show up and sometimes he does and they form this like attachment turns out he's a merman so that's weird (laughs) and they start trying to navigate this like relationship like how can they be together when obviously one of them needs to live in the ocean and one of them does not and so here are the reasons why people either love this book or they hate it it is gross like it's very graphic there's a lot of fish sex so if that is gonna turn you off like not turn you off if that's gonna be a thing that makes you not want to read it i'm just saying it now also lucy is very unlikable she is neurotic and really emotionally unstable. She's very judgmental. But the thing about Lucy is that she's not thinking anything, putting any of her thoughts on the page that we all have not thought. Like sometimes some of her thoughts she then acts on, which is I think where she breaks for most people because most people have terrible thoughts and then don't do anything with them because they recognize that they're terrible. But um, Lucy does not do that. She has very little self-control and is very impulsive. Um, So there's a lot of interesting mental health things happening here. It's just very weird. And you look at the cover and the way that it was marketed at first, I think a lot of people go into it mistakenly thinking it's a romance because it's a book about a woman who falls in love with like a fish guy. But it is not that (laughs) at all. It is about being 30 or like being in your late 30s and what the world, how the world treats women who are not, who don't fit into very specific boxes, who aren't married, have kids and a traditional career when they're like approaching 40. That's what this book is about. And since uh, you liked books with like that are literary fiction plus some other genre, that's why I picked this. Also, it's just really smart and funny and disturbing and weird. So, so, so weird. I loved it. I loved it. So that's The Pisces by Melissa Broder. I had an answer for this and now I'm changing it because of something I just started reading on the plane home from PodX. It's Mod's Line by Margaret Verbal. And the reason I decided it was worth changing, even though I haven't finished this book yet, is because I was thinking about Jhumpa Lahiri and I was thinking about how you were saying you like authors that write very plainly. And this book is one of the plainest written books I've ever had the pleasure to read. And it's not a thing I actively seek out, but it is a thing I love when it comes up. We're talking like Larry McMurtry plane here, which is 
something. It's, it's really something, not a wasted word on the page. And this is historical, but it's a family drama, which is like one of the things that Jim Bullyhury does so well. So I feel like even though you didn't say you're interested in historical fiction, this might fit in for you. Um, it's about a family uh, who live in Oklahoma. They are Cherokee. And this is an own voices book. The author herself is, is Cherokee. And actually, this is based on her own family history. And they live on a like an allotment, you know, the U.S. government like parceled out land at the end of the Trail of Tears and uh, and they're still living on their allotment. And her life is very straightforward. And, you know, they're they're poor. They don't have I mean, it's 1928. They don't have running water yet. They don't have electric lights. They don't have a lot of things because they just don't have money or access to those things themselves. They know that it's out there, but, you know, don't have it herself. Um, And she's not necessarily discontented with her life, but she knows what it is and, like, has dreams that she knows she can't fulfill. And there's, like, a lot going on. Her father um, is an alcoholic who's very unpredictable. Uh, Her brother is, you know, sort of like coming they're both you know adults young adults and he is thinking about you know maybe he's gonna get married move on with his life and she's sort of the caretaker of the family and they're in a feud with a neighboring white brothers who are just the worst um and so like that's kind of what's going on and then this peddler like literally peddler with a wagon full of stuff comes to town and he's very attractive and she notices him and she starts to dream of a different kind of life and then things sort of escalate with this feud a bunch of other things happen and that's sort of where i'm at right now it's like oh gosh what like she has these dreams that I want for her but what is actually going to happen because she's in this situation where it seems like her options are going to be really limited by the actions of those around her and so uh, yeah it's just but it's the writing is so spare and perfect like oh it's just perfect and this was apparently a finalist for the Pulitzer which makes sense to me reading it uh, so far so I I think it could be an interesting thing for you to try out. Um, It's available from the library. It's older. It's under 300 pages, so not too long. And yeah, I think it's worth a shot. So again, that's Maud's Line by Margaret Verbal. That's V-E-R-B-L-E. Okay, next question is from Michelle, who says, I'm working my way through the Read Harder Challenge and trying to find romances for any as many of the prompts as possible, which has been really fun. Currently, I am looking for an own voices romance novel from Mexico slash Central America. I prefer queer historical slash fantastic themes to modern day settings, but Read Harder is all about getting out of your comfort zone, so I'm open to anything. What you got, Amanda? Just nothing. I mean, that's not true. It's, this was so hard, y'all. This was really this was hard. Really hard. <laughs> so I will say that I I love the idea of going through the Read Harder Challenge with just romance novels. I think that's amazing. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it, the Read Harder Challenge is a reading challenge, obviously, that we put out every year. That's um, two tasks per month, so 24 in total, That and each task is about reading outside of your comfort zone. We have one that is uh, this year that is, you know, read and own voices novel from Mexico or Central America, but inserting the like romance angle into every task sounds like super hard, but also fantastic and great. So the problem with that I had with this task or the, with this question was that I could find plenty, I could find so many romances by people who are Mexican or have Central American ethnicity, but they aren't all set in those countries where the author doesn't currently live in those countries. So I don't know if this is as um, stringently abiding by the task as you would want it to be. But, you know, as we say in the intro to Read Harder, like, 
if you think it fits, it fits. If you don't think it fits, it doesn't. Like we're not, no one's going to come behind you and like check your math. We're not grading you. So it's really up to you. So I picked Delicious Temptation by Sabrina Soul, which is by a Mexican author and is about a Mexican character, but takes place in LA. So I don't know if the fact that it doesn't take place in one of those countries like disqualifies it for you. I think it's fine, but you know. Also, it sounds amazing. So like, do with all the information what you will. Sabrina Soul is a Mexican author. The, the book is about a woman named Amara, who is like a very traditionally good, quote unquote, good Mexican daughter, right? Like she ha- she wants to be a pastry chef, but she's given up that dream in order to help her parents with their bakery, um, which is in LA, which is like struggling. But her parents are annoying. Like they reject every suggestion that she makes to make the bakery better. They won't let her sell her pastries that she's made because they're not like traditional enough. Um, So she's just really frustrated and she's getting super frustrated with this idea that like she's done everything right. She's dutiful. She does what her parents want her to do. Um, She's trying to help her family, but none of it is paying off and she's just like miserable. And then the hero is a boy named Eric, a boy, a guy <laughs> named Eric, who had this like big local scandal about a decade ago. And he's like come back to make amends and to make things up uh, or to make up with his family and friends. Um, and so he walks into the bakery one day and this is her brother, Amara's brother's ex-best friend. Um, so he walks into the bakery one day with that in mind of like he's going to make things right with the people in his former community. And he sees Amara and then it's like, well, there goes that idea because <laughs> now he wants to be with Amara, but he promised her brother that he would never do that, that he would never pursue his best friend's sister. Amara, however, is like, I'm tired of being a good girl. You're super hot. I didn't make any promises to my brother. So like, let's let's get on. <laughs> I had to. Like, it just flowed. It just came out of me. We're, we're doing Marvin Gaye now. That's what the show is about. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, that's it. Like food. I love a food romance. I think they add such a like I don't know. You put in a couple more senses into a romance novel and I'm here for it. So that's Delicious Temptation by Sabrina Soul. Yeah, I tried so hard (laughs) to find you one that's set actually in Mexico or Central America by a Mexican or Central American author. And I just did not succeed. Um, I do have, we're gonna, I'm going to drop a link in the show notes. We have a post of must read romance novels by Latinx authors. And you could do some more hunting through there uh, if you felt so inclined. Um, I picked for you one I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying. It's called Empty Nests by Ada Maria Soto, who is Mexican American. And this is interesting. It is queer. It's a gay romance. And it is... Uh, like a flip of a bunch of things that I just don't, I don't read a ton of contemporary romance, um, but I've never read one with this setup. So it is about James, who is a 32-year-old single dad. He had a son as a teenager, and he's getting ready to send his son to college. And all he has done, especially because he became a dad so young, is like be a parent. He works uh, in IT at a Berkeley University and he just it's like he hates this job like brilliant people who don't know how to use technology is his life super annoying um and like otherwise like he's just there for his son like this is what he's been doing but he's about to have an empty nest and like what is he gonna do with his life and his son in the meantime is like oh my god dad go on dates like listen i found you with the number of this guy like he's like literally his 18 year old son is trying to set him up <laughs> um it's it's amazing and terrible mortifying <laughs> yes exactly james is so mortified he's just like Ugh. and then our other 
hero, Gabriel Juarez, is the CFO of a technology company. And when we meet him, he's like on a private jet coming back from, you know, I think it's Japan with a sake hangover after clinching a huge deal like he is. And then he has to go do this lecture at one of the Berkeleys about like getting ahead as a Latino man in business. Which is how he meets James, because of course the projector doesn't work. This is just like the best technology meet cute. And they're both being told, like, have a life, date more. And of course, you know, here, like, oh, it's just, it doesn't seem like a natural pairing, but they have like a little rapport. And what I loved about this too is that, like, it doesn't start off as like, and I noticed his eyes and wanted to kiss him. Like, you know, so often there's insta lust, if not insta love in romances. But this was like, oh, I liked his smile and he was nice. Like, oh, and I got his email because I'm going to maybe help him with a tech issue. Like it, it's a, it develops sort of very naturally. Like in the real world, this is how potentially it could develop. And I appreciate that. And like how often, I don't know because I don't read a lot of contemporary build, billionaire romances, but how often is the billionaire the person of color like mm. actually, probably not that often maybe i don't know it's, i can't it's, think of it's one. really awesome yeah. um and they just have a it's really sweet like if you're looking for like super like high stakes you know angsty drama this is not that like it's really sweet i mean there's going to be drama because there's always drama but it's really really sweet and it just does things that i haven't seen i haven't read a romance that does before so i'm really appreciating it so again that's empty nests by ada maria soto oh and it's set in la or, or no, Northern California, Berkeley, right. So California, not Mexico. I'm sorry, I tried. All right, our last question is from Amanda, who says, I'm a new listener in my early 30s and have recently decided to go into the sex work industry after a long stretch of financial hardship. I'm a bit of an activist in the queer and disability communities and looking for something empowering that involves themes of sex work. I have very severe dyslexia, so would prefer something that could be found in audiobook format. Okay, this might be... this. Might sound a little weird, but I picked a romance novel for you because it's so great. It's called Dare to Love a Duke. It's by Eva Lee. And I read it on paper, but all the reviews that I found for it were about the audiobook and how great the audiobook is. So the audiobook is out there and readers have loved it. Listeners have loved it. Whatever. The audiobook is apparently very good. So that exists um, and should be fine. Uh, This is the third book in the London Underground series. But as we've said before, you don't really need to read most historical romances in order. And I haven't read the second one in this series. So I'm reading it out of order right now. Um, So it is fine. Every heroine in the London Underground series has a quote unquote criminal job. So like the first in the first one, she's a con woman. I think in the second one, which I haven't read yet, she's a smuggler. And in this one, Dare to Love a Duke, the heroine is a sex worker. Her name is Lucia. Um, and she is the manager of the Orchid, Orchid <laughs> Club, like the flower, the Orchid Club, which is a sex club in London. And the idea is that people come, they pay what they will at the door. Um, everybody wears masks. And then, you know, whatever you want to do in this club out in the open is what you do. And no one is allowed to like give any identifying information. So the different classes of London's uh, society is like mixing literally and figuratively together. And so she's the manager and it's her job to make sure that everyone feels safe and welcome in this club. And when you learn more about her, you find out that she she's from Italy. She came to the UK um, looking for her biological father's family, who she found, but who rejects her because she is a foreigner. Um, and so she and that's when she was 13. And so from the time of 13 up until present, she's been just like doing what she can to survive that included working as a prostitute. And now she is the manager of this club. Um, the hero, his name is Thomas, and he is the new Duke of Northfield. And as before his father died, and he became Duke, 
he was kind of a rake, like out there, you know, experiencing all that London has to offer, as one does, including going to the Orchid Club. His first time at the club, though, he meets Lucia and is like, Who's that girl? I don't know why I'm singing so much in this episode, but it does very like, who's that girl? Um, and decides like he doesn't want to participate in the club in any way unless it involves her. And she, of course, won't do that because she's the manager. She's not going to like participate in or get involved in, with any of the customers in the club. But he comes back for a year. Like he comes back every week, every Wednesday for a year, not bothering her, but just like getting to know her. And she is fine with it. He's not like harassing her. She is also interested in him. And then after that year, his father dies and he realizes he can't, he can't go back. He's got a younger sister and a mother that he needs to take care of. And if it's ever discovered that he like frequents this club, their reputations would be ruined and he's not willing to risk his family. But then he finds out that his father, who was a famous conservative Tory in parliament, owns the club. Dun, dun, dun. Boom. Now he owns the club. And so what's going to happen? Like now he has to see her every week because he owns the freaking club. And they're, you know, they're... Um, attraction to each other hasn't gone anywhere but now he's in a weird power position where like he's her boss and it's so like oh what's gonna happen the thing that i love about this series is that it's very progressive like she is very openly inserting modern progressive ideals into these regency romances which bothers some readers i think it's awesome so he like openly states i can't pursue you anymore because i'm your boss and that power imbalance is weird um and stuff like that like it's just great the 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 way that she handles the interactions between sex workers who she treats com- with complete respect through this entire book. And the main character, Lucia, has kind of a monologue when you're getting to know her about how prostitution for her is just a job, which is what it is. Like, it's just a job, you know, and she's doing it so that she can save up money to do other stuff, which is what everyone does for work. Like, you work so that you have money to do stuff you actually like doing, you know, and it's not that she doesn't like it. It's just work. And I think that that I think it's great. It's like a you know, it's the third book in a not super famous romance series that's like almost revolutionary to me in its portrayal and respect of sex work as a legitimate means of earning money. So that's Dare to Love a Duke by Eva Lee. I am going to apologize. The book I want for you is not available on audio. It is digital. And hopefully there's like some reading app that you could read it via. It's also very short chapters. So I'm hoping it's still readable for you. I apologize. Um, But it's so good. It's Prostitute Laundry by Charlotte Shane. She is literally a writer and sex worker who started an email newsletter in 2014 about what it was like to be a prostitute. And the readership, like, she, you know, kind of went viral and, you know, she was profiled in the Washington Post and on NPR. And it is, this is a collection of those emails, plus some more about what her life was like and why she was doing the things and the struggles she had with her relationships and, you know, what it was like for with some of these Johns. And it's so interesting. And she's a good writer. And I was lucky enough to moderate a panel that she was on. And she's really thoughtful and also very funny and like unabashed and unapologetic about her very graphic, uh, you know, writing. And it's not all like roses and, you know, money, I guess. Uh, like there's there's stuff that's really complicated and difficult. And she talks about that. And it's just it's just a frank. It's so frank. And it's so current. And it's so interesting. And I thought it was amazing. And it really 
gave me a glimpse into sex work that I just don't know that I would have found anywhere else. So it feels like there would be a lot in here that you could relate to or find familiarity with or possibly like would be helpful for you in entering this field. So again, that's Prostitute Laundry by Charlotte Shane. And that's our show. Yay! We did it. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you are so inclined, it would be great for you to leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love to see the feedback and it helps other people to find the show. Thank you to today's sponsors for making the show possible. And you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you at? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And you can find me on Twitter as Jen IRL. That's Jen with two N's, IRL. And I am now on Bookstagram uh, slash Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.